The golden voice of tenor Luciano Pavarotti singing Una Furtiva Lagrima from Donizetti's L'Elezir d'Amore, with Richard Bonning conducting the English Chamber Orchestra in that 1971 recording. A very good evening from me, Adrian Fuchs, and a warm welcome to tonight's special edition of Great Interpreters, a profile on tenor Luciano Pavarotti. Before we begin, a reminder that this program along with many other programs on famous opera singers, is available for free download from my website On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. I encourage you to visit the site and would also love to hear your feedback and comments on tonight's broadcast. You can send me an email at adrian at onandofftherecord.com or you can contact me via Facebook or Twitter. My Twitter handle is at on off the record. I look forward to hearing from you, but for now, on with tonight's program. Like the legendary Enrico Caruso and Maria Callas before him, Pavarotti's fame spread far beyond the limits normally attributed to classical musicians and opera singers. No other operatic singer of our time, noted Michael Tanner in Spectator magazine, has achieved anything like the celebrity status of Pavarotti, to judge from the position his death occupied in news bulletins, the televising of his funeral, and so on. Callas, whose day-to-day doings were followed by the media with more vivid attention, was a combination of supreme artistry and scandal. Pavarotti was neither. I wanted to ask you about the essence of Pavarotti. There doesn't seem to be a lot of personal dirt to dish. He had some marital trouble, battled his weight a lot. But other than that, we don't have a public perception of a great deal. What was the essence of Pavarotti the man as you understood him? Well, I think he had a public and private persona that were very much the same. I think just as he had an artistic persona that was very much the same, whether he was singing on the opera stage or in an arena in front of 50,000 people, he worked very hard and to present one direction. Um, he was very tied into his public. I think he revived opera as a popular art, which, of course, it originally was. He was connected to that Italian tradition of music that was sung in the street and music that was for everybody. And he had a way of bringing that across to a wide audience, which, of course, today is very rare at a time when we see opera as being high art. Pavarotti's brand of opera was not high art. He had a glorious voice and that could appeal to opera snobs and lay people alike. And that extract that we just listened to was from an interview with the music critic Anne Majet, several snippets of which I will be playing to you during the course of tonight's program. During an illustrious career that spanned four decades, Pavarotti, 
who would later be dubbed Maestro of the Masses, became synonymous with the art of singing and an icon of popular culture. He had sung in all the world's most prestigious opera houses and entertained thousands in stadium concerts around the globe. With his uniquely thrilling voice and exceptionally endearing personality, he touched an audience of millions worldwide through his televised performances, especially as part of the Three Tenors or the Pavarotti and Friends concerts. Regarded as one of the most popular and successful classical artists in the history of the recording industry, Pavarotti sold more than a hundred million recordings and collaborated with the finest artists of his time. His recorded legacy comprises more than a hundred titles. His album, The Essential Pavarotti, became the first ever classical album to reach the number one spot in the UK pop charts, remaining there for an unprecedented five weeks, while the first Three Tenors album remains the best-selling classical album of all time. Apart from his voice, people responded to Pavarotti as a man. He was unique for his size, his openness, sincerity and generosity. According to Bernard Holland, Pavarotti, through his expansive personality, childlike charm and generous figure, offered audiences a link to an art form with which many had only a glancing familiarity. Not since Enrico Caruso had an operatic tenor captured people's imagination in that way. Pavarotti was born on the 12th of October 1935 in Modena, Italy, a city that remained his primary residence throughout his life. Interestingly, that same year and same city also saw the birth of one of Pavarotti's closest collaborators, the soprano Mirella Freni. Their mothers worked in the same cigarette factory, and both singers claimed to have shared the same wet nurse, a fact that led Freni to joke, you can see who got all the milk. Pavarotti's father, Fernando, was a baker and amateur tenor with an appealing voice who exposed the young Pavarotti to opera recordings of legendary tenors such as Enrico Caruso, Beniamino Gili and Tito Schipa. My idol is Di Stefano. I remember the I fight with my father because we were hearing on the radio all the voices of the tenor of that period. And Beniamino Gili was at the very, very head of this. And one day, my father was not at home, I hear this young voice. And I hear that the name is not Beniamino Gili. <clears throat> it's called Di Stefano. So my father come home and they say, Papa, I hear somebody that I like more than Gigi. I think my father was the only time he slapped me in the face. Fernando Pavarotti could sense his son's potential and encouraged him to have lessons with Arrigo Paula, a local teacher. Paula believed not in teaching his students to sing particular repertoires, but rather instilled in them the fundamentals of the art of singing. He focused on scales, articulation, trills and proper legato. In short, he laid the foundations of a technique that would sustain Pavarotti throughout his life. In 1957, however, Paula took a teaching job in Japan and Pavarotti started studies with Ettore Campogalliani in nearby Mantua. 
Campo Galliani would remain Pavarotti's teacher for the next three years, and during this time, Pavarotti decided to leave his day job as an insurance agent and to devote himself to his singing full-time. In 1961, Pavarotti married his first wife, Ahuda Veroni, with whom he would eventually father three daughters. 1961 was also the year of his first major breakthrough, when he won an international singing competition in Piacenza. This triumph led to his operatic stage debut later that year on the 29th of April at the Municipal Theatre in Reggio Emilia in Puccini's La Bohème. Rodolfo in La Bohème was to become Pavarotti's signature role and would prove the vehicle for most of his subsequent debuts at the world's major opera houses, including La Scala, Covent Garden and the Metropolitan Opera. Here is Kegeli da Manina from Pavarotti's famous 1973 recording of Puccini's La Bohème. The Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra is conducted by Herbert von Karajan.
The next few years were formative, and Pavarotti devoted himself with single-mindedness to his opera career, quickly establishing his reputation as one of the great male voices of his generation. On the advice of his first agent, he studied four key roles, two by Verdi, the Duke in Rigoletto, and Alfredo in La Traviata, Edgardo in Donizetti's Lucia di Lammermoor, and Pinkerton in Puccini's Madama Butterfly. The most important quality is persistence. You really want to do, you do. Uh, the other people are doing this ten times to do good, you will do 100 to do very good. And that is life, even. And I am like that. In 1963, Pavarotti made his Covent Garden debut when he substituted for his idol, Giuseppe Di Stefano, as Rodolfo in La Bohème. His international career had begun. Though Mozart is a composer not usually associated with Pavarotti, his next major success occurred in 1964, when he made his Glyndebourne debut in the role of Idamante in Idomineo, opposite Richard Lewis and Gondula Janowitz. The production was brought to London for a prom's performance and was important in further establishing Pavarotti's reputation amongst the British public and critics. Though he would later record the role of Idomineo in a commercial recording of the opera, conducted by John Pritchard, a bootleg recording of that original Glyndebourne production survives and remains one of the few recorded examples of Pavarotti in a Mozart role. Here then is Pavarotti's rendition of the aria Il Padre Adorato from Mozart's Edomineo, recorded during the 1964 Glyndebourne Festival. John Pritchard conducts the Glyndebourne Festival Orchestra. Ritrovo 
1964 was also the year that Pavarotti made his first recording for Decca, the recording company he was to remain with throughout his career. It was an extended play disc that contained Puccini's Cegeli da Manina from La Boheme, three arias from Verdi's Rigoletto, as well as E Luce van le Stelle from Puccini's Tosca. The orchestra of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden, conducted by Sir Edward Downes, accompanying Luciano Pavarotti there in that recording of El Luce van le Stelle from Puccini's Tosca. A turning point in Pavarotti's career came about in 1964 when he started his long association with soprano Joan Sutherland. His artistic relationship with her, as well as with her husband, the conductor Richard Bonning, proved to be a long and enduring one, and Pavarotti has credited Sutherland's advice and encouragement as a major factor in his artistic development, describing her to the critic Jürgen Kesting 
as the most perfect singer as far as technique is concerned that the 20th century has known. In Pavarotti, Sutherland had found the ideal tenor voice, light, flexible and founded on an outstanding technique, to complement hers, especially in the many bell canto operas the pair were to sing together. In 1965, Pavarotti joined the Sutherland Williamson Opera Company on an Australian tour, during which he sang opposite Sutherland in productions of Lucia di Lamanmoor and La Traviata. A bootleg recording from one of those early Australian Traviatas survives and captures a youthful Pavarotti at the outset of his career.
Unde Felice and Parigi Ocara from Verdi's La Traviata. Luciano Pavarotti, of course, the tenor, and Joan Sutherland, the soprano, in that live 1965 recording. Pavarotti and Sutherland's musical partnership was to last until Sutherland's retirement, and both artists were fortunate to commit to disc many of their greatest collaborations for Decca, including La Fille du Regiment, L'Elezir d'Amore, Rigoletto, I Puritani, Il Trovatore, La Traviata, and Lucia di Lammermoor. I'd now like to play to you an extract from one of Pavarotti's earliest recordings, a recording of the aria Fra poco a me ricovero from Lucia di Lammermoor, recorded in 1968 as part of a Verdi Donizetti recital. The Vienna Opera Orchestra is conducted by Sir Edward Downs.
The mid-1960s saw Pavarotti's first collaborations with the great Austrian conductor Herbert von Karajan, who, according to Decca producer Christopher Rayburn, admired Pavarotti hugely as a talent and as an extremely important singer of his generation. And Pavarotti, notes Rayburn, had huge respect for him. I would say more respect for Karajan than for any other conductor with whom he worked. It was Karajan who requested Pavarotti's engagement to sing Rodolfo in La Scala's 1965 revival of the famous Franco Zeffirelli production of La Boheme, resulting in his La Scala debut on April 28th of that year. In 1967, the young and at the time relatively unknown Pavarotti, together with a dream lineup of soloists at the peak of their careers, soprano Leontine Price, mezzo-soprano Fiorenza Cosotto and bass Nikolai Giarov sang in a filmed version of Verdi's Requiem performed by the orchestra and chorus of La Scala Milan in memory of the 10th anniversary of the death of the Italian conductor Arturo Toscanini. Let's listen now to the Ingemisco from that legendary 1967 recording which Pavarotti sings with exquisite detail and expressiveness. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
In 1968, Pavarotti made his Metropolitan Opera debut, again in the role of Rudolfo in La Boheme, appearing opposite his childhood friend soprano Mirella Freni. Though his debut was successful, it was not until 1972, when he sang Tonio in Donizetti's La Fille du Regiment, that Pavarotti became a Met superstar and experienced his first taste of international stardom. Though some critics have noted that Pavarotti's French sounded like French-tinged Italian, the light-hearted and charming role of Tonio suited him extremely well, not only because he could show off his superlative technique, but also because his approach to the role was slightly ironic, and Pavarotti enjoyed sending himself up. The opera's showpiece aria, Amezami, contains nine very exposed high seas, which at a performance on the 12th of February 1972 at the Metropolitan Opera, Pavarotti spun off into the theatre with effortless ease, earning him a record-breaking 17 curtain calls, establishing his phenomenal reputation in the US and earning him the nickname King of the High Seas. Pavarotti was the first tenor in decades able to sing not only Tonio's first act aria and cabaletta in Donizetti's original key, but also to sing those high C's in full voice rather than the usual falsetto. In succeeding years, the role of Tonio proved to be his calling card, and he sang the role to great acclaim throughout the United States. The esteemed critic John Steen noted in his book The Grand Tradition that Pavarotti's leaps to high C's are tireless, and they are not there as a great show-off, but as part of the fun expressions of joy and energy, like a youngster doing cartwheels or standing on his head, and nonetheless artistic for that. Here then is A Mes Amis from Donizetti's La Fille du Regiment, as sung by Luciano Pavarotti. The orchestra and chorus of the Royal Opera House Covent Garden is conducted by Richard Bonning in this 1968 recording. <laughs> Je vais marcher sous vos drapeaux. 
est amoureux. <rire> Et c'est un bousel que j'espère.
The 1970s saw Pavarotti rise effortlessly to the top of his profession. When in 1973, at a recital at William Jewell College in Missouri, the tenor asked for a handkerchief to wipe his perspiring brow, he was given a white dinner napkin instead, a prop that became a signature part of his solo performances. Early in 1974, he had an unheard of five albums on Billboard's best-selling classical LP chart. Like so many great opera singers before him, Pavarotti possessed what legendary EMI producer Walter Legge referred to as the synchronon for a great career as a singer, an instantly recognizable vocal timbre. I think an important quality that I have, Pavarotti once noted, is that if you turn on the radio and you hear somebody sing, you know it's me. You don't confuse my voice with any other. Pavarotti had been blessed with a naturally beautiful voice. Kissed by God was his own way of expressing it. He was essentially a lean, light, lyric tenor with all the flexibility that one associates with such a voice. Yet his voice, as Anthony Tomasini once noted, like everything around him, was uncommonly large. He possessed a warm, enveloping, classic Italianate sound, which combined with exquisite Italian diction, infallible technique, clear timbre, secure upper register, and according to Frank Granville Baker, glorious open tone, elegant phrasing, and impeccable command of style, made him ideally suited to the lighter roles in Donizetti, Bellini, and Verdi requiring lyrical grace and agile passage work. Here is A Perché Non Posso Odiarti from La Sonambula by Bellini. Richard Bonning conducts the National Philharmonic Orchestra and this recording dates from 1980.
possa un altro la possa amarti qual tavolo questi infelice altro voto traditrice ah, non temer non temer dal mio dolor altro voto non temere non temer dal mio dolor altro voto non temere Pavarotti's vocal longevity over a career that spanned four decades was no doubt a result of his good sense in staying within a repertoire perfectly matched to his abilities. In the 1960s and early 70s, his repertoire centered on Bellini, Donizetti, and Verdi's lighter so-called middle-period roles, the tenor parts in Luisa Miller, Rigoletto, La Traviata, and Un Ballo in Maschera, as well as Puccini's La Boheme. However, from the mid-1970s onwards, Pavarotti gradually started moving to heavier roles, initially Puccini's Tosca and Turandot, eventually Ponchielli's La Gioconda, and later Verdi's Il Trovatore, Luisa Miller and Aida. Here is Pavarotti's 1989 recording of Celeste Aida from Verdi's opera. Se quel guerriero io fossi, se il mio sogno s'abberasse. Un esercito di prodi da me guidato. Steve. 
Pavarotti's most striking departure from the traditional lyric repertoire came in 1991 when he took on the role of Verdi's Otello, one of the most challenging tenor parts in the entire repertoire, for four concert performances to mark Sir Georg Salty's farewell to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. Along with the heavier roles came a darker, smokier vocal quality. Pavarotti himself explained that the D-flat you must forget when you begin Tosca and Trovatore. The D-flat is possible in the Bellini repertoire, which is legato and ligiero. Verdi is espressivo. You have to give more power. Because of this, you lose one or two notes at the top. Let's listen now to Di Quella Pira from Il Trovatore by Verdi. Pavarotti is joined by Joan Sutherland and James Clark. The National Philharmonic Orchestra and London Opera Chorus is conducted by Richard Bonning.
It has often been said that Pavarotti's ability to read music was severely limited, and that like the great Enrico Caruso before him, he only possessed a rudimentary knowledge of music theory. How much could he read music? We've heard that he, that he really couldn't read music very much. I, he could not read music, although people have said to me that that was not that uncommon from the glory days of Italian opera. <laughs> he read the words. He always had the words printed on a big piece of paper, and sometimes I think indication about whether the music went up or down. Um, that said, he had a terrific ear. I don't think he made a lot of mistakes in terms of pitch, although his rhythm could be a little creative sometimes. But uh, the, the essence and the spirit of it there were deeply connected, perhaps because he wasn't glued to the page note to note. Pavar- I'm, I'm sorry, go ahead, you were going to say. I was going to say that might be part of the Italian tradition. He was so deeply rooted in the Italianness of it and the vowels and the legato line. That came sort of naturally to him through his ear and would not maybe have been improved by his reading music. It didn't really matter. In a certain sense, Pavarotti fitted the popular image of the full-blooded Italian tenor, claiming that he loved music, woman, wine, and, of course, food. His ever-increasing weight, which caused him significant difficulties in the final years of his operatic career, when productions had to be altered to accommodate his increasing inability to move about on stage, furthermore contributed to his image as the almost caricature-like embodiment of the typical fat male opera singer. The next extract that we will be listening to is Omuto Azil from William Tell, Rossini's last opera. The four-hour-long work is rarely performed today due to the high demands it places on the tenor lead role Arnoldo, who must sing two high C-sharps, 28 high Cs, and an undisclosed number of Bs and B-flats. According to Robert Levine, the role is as long and expressive as it is high. Many regard it as Pavarotti's greatest performance on disc. He himself once said that it was his best recording. Here is O Muto Azil from William Tell by Rossini. Riccardo Chahili conducts the National Philharmonic Orchestra in this 1980 recording. Il padre, il padre 
speranza dall'arma io sento i voti vedetta vedetta sono essi miei più fini chi mai li guida me
By the end of the 1980s, Pavarotti's fame was universal. His extensive discography ensured that his voice was heard in every corner of the world and his televised appearances at major houses like the Met received record viewing figures. 
when he sang Rodolfo in the first Live from the Met telecast in 1977, for example, he achieved what was then the largest audience ever for an opera in the United States. Increasingly, Pavarotti and his management looked for opportunities to reach out to new and ever larger audiences, and as a result, stadium events became a part of his musical life. A selection of popular arias, a handful of lighter numbers, and a couple of overtures, and the Pavarotti magic could be spread to tens of thousands, not merely a couple of thousand. Though in interviews, Pavarotti made a strong case for what his fame could do for the art of opera, critics dismissed his large-scale concerts and pop collaborations as unworthy of his talents. I remember when I began singing in 1961, Pavarotti told Opera News in 1998, one person said to me that opera will only survive for the next 10 years or so, since at the time the opera world was going through a really difficult time. But then, I was lucky enough to perform in the first Live from the Met telecast, and the day after, people stopped me in the street. That's when I realized the importance of bringing opera to the masses. Michael Tanner recently noted that there is no point in regretting Pavarotti's disinclination to serve the art of opera. He knew what he could do best, phased complete operatic roles gradually out of his career, and gave and gained huge satisfaction from these large-scale concerts, just as his audience did. If either Pavarotti or the audience thought his performances were in any way closely related to opera, they were mistaken. Pavarotti sang with everybody, not just opera singers, with Frank Sinatra and Michael Jackson and Sting. And it was uh, clearly profitable, and it did keep that connection going. But what did those collaborations do for his individual art and for the art of operatic singing? It's a question that's in part about his legacy, too. Well, I don't think that those kinds of collaborations do much for operatic singing. I think the whole phenomenon of operatic crossover doesn't even really fuel opera. I'm not sure people who buy... Bocelli go and buy tickets to the Metropolitan Opera. Um, but I think that it came back to the time, say, Enrico Caruso, who thought nothing of doing crossover and did all kinds of popular songs and popular appearances. Um, opera singers used to be great big superstars, and Pavarotti revived that tradition in our time. Um, those duets and crossover things gave pleasure to a lot of people um, and possibly possibly help fuel the interest that drives people to see the Met in Times Square now. The Metropolitan Opera is broadcast in Times Square and have some connection to or interest in that. But I don't think ever the point was to drive the art of opera. Um, however, I do think Pavarotti's legacy is often misunderstood by the classical world and that he took a lot of flack throughout his career for, quote, selling out, unquote. And I think he was simply modeling his brand, if you will, or marketing his brand was seeing how far he could go with something. And uh, there was no shame in that in Caruso's day. And it's an interesting comment on the role of opera in our society that people perceive there is being shame in that in ours. The avalanche of publicity and hype surrounding each of Pavarotti's open-air solo concerts was no doubt masterminded by Herbert Breslin, the American manager and public relations representative for many celebrated classical artists, who also negotiated fees far beyond those of Pavarotti's rivals, starting at 20000 and sometimes reaching as high as $100,000 and beyond. In 2002, however, 
Pavarotti split from Breslin, who had been his manager for 36 years. In 2004, Breslin published The King and I, a sensationalist and largely critical account of Pavarotti, filled with sour grapes. Amongst other things, Breslin credited himself with being Luciano's creator and describes Pavarotti's original deal to sing with Placido Domingo and Jose Carreras a big, big, big mistake. What happened with Luciano Pavarotti and myself was a unity of purpose. He wanted success. He wanted to be extremely well-known. He wanted everything that could happen to a, to a tenor. That's what he wanted. So that we formed this partnership. He was open-minded and, in a way, open-hearted, too. So that made him into a very unusual kind of tenor. We started in 1967-68. He made his Met debut. And then, of course, he came back to the Met, and every performance that he did increased his cachet, increased the fact that people, who was this guy, this great face, this great voice, the sound of that voice was, hadn't been heard for, for, for many, many years. He gave you goose pimples. He made the hair on your hands you know, stand on edge. But I said, the thing that you have to tell me is, can you stand before a public, without makeup, without costume, without anything, completely exposed, the guy you're singing to is going to be four feet away from you. He's going to be looking down your throat. Can you do that? He loved it. He loves all that stuff. They could be sitting on his shoulder. They could be in his throat. He would like that even more. So that proximity to the people, to everything, was what made him tick. In 1990, Pavarotti became even more well-known around the world when his rendition of Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot was chosen as the theme song of the 1990 FIFA Soccer World Cup in Italy. On the eve of the final match in Rome, Platido Domingo, Jose Carreras and conductor Zubin Mehta joined Pavarotti for a concert at the ancient baths of Caracalla, which was presented to raise funds for the foundation that Carreras, a leukemia survivor, had established. The success of the initial venture led to a series of such events that virtually became a brand in their own right and expanded Pavarotti's franchise exponentially. The relaxed, laid-back Roman concert was succeeded by multi-million dollar media events that, while undoubtedly popular, smacked of unashamed commercialism. Among the many other cities which hosted the tenors were Los Angeles in 1994, Paris in 1998, and Yokohama in 2002. Most critics agree that it was Pavarotti's charisma which made the collaboration such a success. Here is La Donna Immobile from Verdi's Rigoletto, sung by the three tenors Pavarotti, Domingo and Carreras during their 1998 concert in Paris. The Orchestra de Paris is conducted by James Levine. Sempre amabile, reggiadro 
Pavarotti, on his own, entertained an audience of 150,000 people in London's Hyde Park in 1991, the first time a classical concert had been given in the park. Attended by the Prince and Princess of Wales, the concert, which was given in pouring rain, was televised and became a bestseller in its video format. In 1993, the scale grew even larger when Pavarotti appeared before an audience of 500,000 on the Great Lawn of New York's Central Park, with millions more around the world watching on television. In 1981, Pavarotti established the Pavarotti International Voice Competition in Philadelphia, each occasion culminating in staged scenes from operas that were part of his repertoire. These reached a climax in staged performances by entrants in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing in China, an occasion that also saw Pavarotti himself sing to a crowd of 10,000, a groundbreaking moment in Chinese musical history. Pavarotti also engaged on a long-term project to raise money for charity. On the eve of his annual show-jumping event, the Pavarotti International CSIO San Marino, the tenor would invite singers from every walk of musical life to join him in a concert to raise money for various charitable organizations. One of these was War Child, founded in 1993 in response to the conflict raging in the former Yugoslavia to benefit homeless and orphaned children. The culmination of Pavarotti's work for War Child was the opening of the Pavarotti Music Center in Mostar, Bosnia, where music becomes a way of bringing children together in a safe and welcoming environment. The early 1990s saw the first of many Pavarotti and Friends concerts, expressly designed to break down barriers. With each successive concert, 
the collaborations became more and more adventurous and artistically more rewarding. The guest list of visiting artists included such names as Sting, Andrea Bocelli, George Michael, Elton John, The Spice Girls, Liza Minnelli, Ricky Martin, The Eurythmics and U2. Let's listen now to the popular O Sole Mio as performed by Pavarotti and Brian Adams during the 1994 Pavarotti and Friends concert in Modena. The Orchestra del Teatro Comunale di Bologna is conducted by Leone Maghiera. The last 15 years of Pavarotti's career saw less work in the great opera houses of the world. He was constantly troubled by health problems, particularly with his legs, and he was forced to cancel several performances. His frequent withdrawals from prominent productions at opera houses like the Metropolitan Opera and Covent Garden, often from productions created with him in mind, 
caused widespread uproar and earned him the nickname the King of Cancellations. His withdrawal from Tosca at Covent Garden in 1983 caused an outcry, not least because the reason given was a dust allergy. This caused a rift between the Royal Opera House and Pavarotti that was to last for some time. A series of cancellations at the Lyric Opera of Chicago, 26 out of 41 scheduled performances, moved the Lyric's general manager in 1989 to declare Pavarotti persona non grata at her company, making it clear that he would never again sing at Chicago's premier opera house. With the ever-increasing fame and fortune brought about by his stadium concerts and pop collaborations, Pavarotti seemed increasingly willing to accept pedestrian musical standards and seemingly found it more and more difficult to learn new opera roles. Even his old friend and colleague Dame Joan Sutherland often dropped hints in interviews that he should retire.
And that aria was the famous Vesti la Juba from Pagliacci by Leoncavallo. Giuseppe Patene conducted the National Philharmonic Orchestra in that 1978 recording. In 1992, Pavarotti returned to the Met in a role he had first sung back in 1969, Oronte, in Verdi's Il Lombardi. He struggled to make it more than a stand-and-deliver performance, but vocally it was a part well within his abilities. The following year at La Scala, he took on another Verdi role, that of Don Carlo, an emotionally complex character at the centre of one of the composer's darkest and most intriguing works. Pavarotti's characterization showed an artist well inside the role and still willing to take on new challenges at a time when other singers might have eased back. A storm of sensationalist press, however, broke out when during a performance of Don Carlo, Pavarotti's voice cracked. The incident made headlines the world over, but the tenor was optimistic. As he pointed out in his book, Pavarotti, My World, when you are said to be one of the best in your profession, the critics act as though they have never heard of a professional singer hitting a bad note, and when it happens to you, they announce the end of your career. Nevertheless, he refused to appear at the Scala ever again. How bad is the pressure? Truthfully. Truthful? Yeah. I think it's an enjoyment. I don't think it's a job. It's not a profession, it's an enjoyment. I'm telling you the truth. I believe. Otherwise, I will not do now, at my age, when everybody is trying to kill me. Every newspaper is there, ready to say when I'm going to die, and I do that. And then there are the fans. If you do something wrong, they, they, they can protest, they can boo you. And at La Scala in Milan, that's exactly what happened. Luciano failed to hit the high notes in the second act of Don Carlos. His voice cracked. The applause you hear is not coming from the Loganisti. Those temperamental fans who sit in the upper balconies boo. reaction Pavarotti almost never receives. The occasion, the opening of the opera season before the president of Italy. It was a miserable humiliation. Who are the Logionisti? Yeah, but the Logionisti... Who are they? Who are they? Yeah, who are they? I think there are people that they leave to go to the opera every night. Yeah. They give all their love to the opera. They think then they are the ultimate judge of what is going to happen there and they think to have the right to applaud or to boo and if you want to know my opinion they are right and you are not hurt truly now about the speculation oh he's entering the twilight of his career and and he's he's lazy i hear that a lot you want to know something i am lazy you are yes during the disappointing last decade of his career, Pavarotti coasted on his talent and popularity. A return to the Metropolitan Opera in 1995 in one of his favourite roles, Tonio in Donizetti's La Fille du Regiment, proved utterly disappointing. 
even those famous high seas that catapulted Pavarotti to international stardom and earned him the nickname King of the High Seas were no longer within his grasp, and there was widespread controversy over the downward transposition of this notoriously difficult role. If there was one thing that uh, people said, perhaps unkindly, about him was that he occasionally appeared unprepared, and of course late in his career, he he sang too long. Why did he do that? Why did he keep singing even though his best days were far, far behind him? Well, I think one of the fundamental things about his career was his relationship to his public. I think that's what drove it from the early days on. He really loved the public, and he kind of craved that adulation. And many members of the public responded right back. I mean, he inspired tremendous admiration. People adored him. Um, I think he kept singing because he really couldn't exist without that. Um, in a way, it's, it's interesting that he died so young because he never had to face truly retiring or what life would be like without performing. The last few years of Pavarotti's career were illuminated by his second marriage in 2003 to his longtime assistant Nicoletta Mantovani, 30 years his junior and mother to his daughter Alice, born in 2002. In 2004, Pavarotti appeared for the final time at the Metropolitan Opera with a string of performances of Puccini's Tosca. At the last of them, on the 13th of March 2004, he received a 15-minute standing ovation and 10 curtain calls. In total, he had sung 379 performances at the Met, of which 357 were in fully staged opera productions. Here now is Recondita Armonia from Puccini's Tosca. Nicola Rascigno conducts the National Philharmonic Orchestra in this 1979 recording.
Pavarotti's farewell tour kicked off in 2005 and was originally scheduled to include 40 concerts. Following performances in Australia, Hong Kong and Shanghai, his concert schedule was interrupted by health problems, initially with complications after a back operation. In July 2006, however, Pavarotti was forced to call off the tour when he was diagnosed with a malignant pancreatic mass which required immediate surgery. On the 6th of September 2007, he succumbed to the last stages of his illness in his home in Modena, Italy. Despite the many cancellations and setbacks in his later career, Pavarotti's millions of fans the world over maintain their devotion to him and his popularity will surely endure for years and years to come, thanks largely to his remarkable legacy of recordings, both sound and audiovisual documents, which include virtually his entire repertoire. According to the Times newspaper, the magnificence of Pavarotti's singing has secured an exalted position for him among the finest tenors of the 20th century. No one did more in our time to bring a new public to opera. In summing up his life and career, Pavarotti once noted, I think a life in music is a life beautifully spent, and this is what I have devoted my life to. Well, that's it from me, Adrian Fuchs, for this edition of Great Interpreters. The last aria that I'd like to play to you is the famous Nessun Dorma from Puccini's Turandot, an aria that has become inextricably linked in the public imagination with Pavarotti. This particular recording dates from 1973, with Zubin Mehta conducting the London Philharmonic Orchestra with the John Elders Choir and Wandsworth School Boys Choir. Please remember that you can download a copy of tonight's broadcast from my website On and Off the Record, www.onandofftherecord.com. I'd also love to hear your feedback and comments, or if you have any questions, feel free to drop me a line on adrian at onandofftherecord.com or send me a message on my website. The website address again, www.onandofftherecord.com. Join me again on Friday the 28th of February at 8pm here on Fine Music Radio for a program on coloratura marvel soprano Idita Gruberova. Till then, enjoy the rest of your Valentine's Day and have a wonderful weekend. Good night.
Shut up. 